the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Over the past several weeks, we have been unpacking 1 Corinthians 15, in which we have been looking at the resurrection, not the resurrection of Christ, which we did look at, but in support of the main topic at hand, which is the future resurrection of all believers. Over and over again, in Paul's addressing this wrong thinking, this heretical doctrine that had infiltrated the ancient church at Corinth, he tells us over and over again about the beauties, the wonders, but most of all, the reality and promise that all believers will one day be resurrected in glorified body. And over and over again, we have to ask the question, well, what does that mean for us? How do we live in light of eternity today? How should that impact us in our Christian walk, in our Christian obedience, in our putting off of sin today, in 2022? Until that day when we see Christ face to face and wait in heaven for the glorified physical body. Well, Paul's not going to leave us hanging. In our passage this morning, he does just that. He gives us specific practical steps in how to live in light of eternity and specifically the new heavens and new earth in which we will live in physical glorified bodies. And so as we continue our series on resurrection reality, we look at how to live in light of that reality. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in our passage this morning, verses 33 and 34. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34 tell us how to live in light of eternity. He doesn't specifically say that, but obviously in the context, this is what he is talking about. So as we pick apart these verses in and of themselves, they look like just general Christian instruction, but they are all within the context of resurrection. Let me read these for you, verses 33 and 34 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm reading from the New American Standard. He writes, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. In these two verses, I want to give you five points. Specifically, five measurements of living in light of eternity. Five measurements of living in light of eternity. What do I mean when I say that? What I mean is that I'm going to give you, over the next 45 minutes, five areas of self-evaluation for you as a Christian. And these measurements of self-evaluation will help you determine whether you are truly living in light of the resurrection, in light of eternity. And of course, if the answer is no, Paul is telling us that we must change that. Five measurements of living in light of eternity. The first measurement is the company you keep. The company you keep. Again, verse 33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company 
corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. You've heard this before. This is a common saying. You've heard it said in a variety of ways by a variety of people, from Sancho Panza and Don Quixote, who said, tell me of your company, and I will tell you what you are, to Colin Powell, who says, a mirror reflects a man's face, but what he is really like is shown by the kind of friends he chooses. We understand this. We know this. Your parents told you this. They may not have quoted this verse or quoted this proverb, but they told you, don't hang out with those people. Find good kids to spend time with. Thousands of variations from thousands of different individuals in thousands of different occupations and walks of life because the basic premise is true. Who you surround yourself with is an indication of who you are or who you will become. If those individuals are bad people, according to biblical standards, bad according to the Bible, then, Paul says, they will corrupt your good, your good biblical obedience and morality. Let's pick this apart. He begins by saying, do not be deceived. The grammar in the Greek as we often see with a command or an imperative, indicates that he's telling them to stop doing something that they are currently doing. They're in the practice of being deceived. He says, stop being deceived. Literally, stop being led astray. Cease erring. Stop being seduced. Another little but significant grammatical point is that they are being deceived. In other words, the the deception is coming from someone else, but they are choosing to believe it. And that's why he says bad company corrupts good morals. Someone else is deceiving you. Someone else is making you believe heresy. Do something about it. As we continue in the verse, he goes on to explain the importance of no longer being deceived with that proverb, bad company corrupts good morals. This can be loosely traced back to a well-known comedy or play by Menander, but just as it is today, it had clearly become a very popular saying. It is true. It's always been true. It always will be true so long as this earth exists. And bad company is just that. The grammar or the Greek literally evil companionships. Evil companionships. Good for nothing. Or bad associations, companions, company, friends, even conversations can be included in the word company. And these types of interactions and associations will corrupt or ruin good morals. And of course, what he's talking about, the Apostle Paul, in this context, are the morals of the Bible-believing Christian. Of course, we're not talking about uh, social politeness or social morals, if that's even a thing, but Bible-believing, Bible-commanded morality. The word good is actually pretty interesting. It literally means serviceable, useful, And it contrasts bad in that one means worthless, good for nothing, whereas the other means full of service, serviceable, and thus 
full of worth. Morals, of course, are the customs, habits, ways, character of a person. Put this all together. As believers, we have, by His enablement, good, God-honoring habits and character. But if we associate with bad people, they will influence us to the point that our habits and character can shift and change and ultimately become worthless in the sight of God. And I want to clarify that bad people, and I'll elaborate on this more as we go through the passage, are not murderers. It's not criminals and thieves. Again, we're talking about bad according to the Scriptures, which would be any unbeliever. And so we need to be careful. And so, bad company corrupts good morals. But there is a glaring issue here. Paul never says who these deceiving people are and how they are corrupting these particular good morals. But again, he doesn't have to because he's been talking about it for the entirety of 1 Corinthians 15. He is referring to those who have come into the Corinthian church who have convinced some of the believers that future resurrection is not real. In other words, and this is very important, Paul is warning us that our doctrine can be altered when we associate with the wrong people. Some of you have experienced that in churches. The wrong people, seeker-sensitive, liberal, whatever it may be, start influencing how you think. I'm going to say it again. Our doctrine, our theology, can be altered if we associate with the wrong people. And I want to make very clear and practical that in our day and age, bad company can include family, it can include social media, it can include the news. It can be the type of movies you watch, the TV shows you watch, the music you listen to, and the books that you read. Those things are not neutral. They can drive you closer to God or further from Him. I mean, after all, I would say at least half the Christians, half the Christian testimonies I have heard in my entire life, one of the main things they say is I got saved and I started listening to different kind of music. It influences you. It's not just a movie. It's not just a TV show. It's influence. And how can these things or people change your doctrine? I want to make this practical for you. Think about your views on any issue. And if you have a view because of your parents' pressure or because of social pressure, whether it's the definition of biblical love, uh, whether it's the resurrection, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's when life begins, whether it's women's roles, whether it's when sex is okay before or after marriage, who it's with, whether it's about dating unbelievers or whether unbelievers go to heaven, if you have any view 
that in your mind and heart or how you live practically disagrees at all with the Bible, guess what? It didn't come from the Bible. It came from someone else. It came from pressure from somewhere else. You got that view from an external source, whether it was a parent, a college professor, a former pastor. The status quo, bad company, corrupts good morals. So what Paul is telling the Corinthians is to recognize and admit the negative influence on them and flee. Get them out of there. Get away from them. Specifically for them, disassociate from the people who are rejecting the resurrection because they're heretics. Because it wasn't just about a doctrine. It was about the resulting morals, a way of life. Bad doctrine leads to unholy, sinful living. Because as we saw last week, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Enjoy life to the fullest. Rather than living in light of eternity. And this principle then applies to us not just in the doctrine of the resurrection, but in any doctrine. We are always influenced by the company we keep. And doctrine always leads to practice. Doctrine always leads to practice. So you take those two truths together, and bad company will lead to unholy practice. And one example right off the bat is how many of you know that a loved one in their current state and beliefs is not going to heaven and yet they get sick and you get sad and you feel compassion and all of a sudden, well, I think they're going to heaven. That's a major one. But even our different views of how we look at other people. Sometimes we take views on, for example, homosexuality, not because of what the Scriptures say, not even what society says about that view, but what society says Christians do to homosexuals. And so you say, well, I don't want to be like those. Too many Christians are killing homosexuals. Name one. They say, well, I don't want to be like them. And so you, you adjust your view a little bit. Not because of the Bible, not even because of society, but because of this judgmental attitude towards some hypothetical church somewhere. I know I'm going to get a chuckle with this one. But we cannot treat the Bible the way we treat the CDC where we believe the central truth, which is the gospel, we believe the central truth the CDC is telling us COVID is real. But then we pick and choose which of their guidelines to follow that results from that central truth. If we like it and it makes us comfortable, then we do it. If not, we don't. And we go so far as to persecute people in the church who don't agree with us. There are some who have been mocking and disagreeing with the CDC week after week after week. CDC. They don't know what they're doing. Liberal propaganda. And then two years later, 
you know, the CDC says we don't have to wear masks anymore. <laughs> Suddenly you're quoting the CDC. But that's the CDC. They're trying to keep up with something that's new and ever-changing. I'm talking about the Scriptures. The Scriptures are foundational and never-changing. You cannot just agree with the Gospel and then disregard how the Bible tells us to live in response to the Gospel. And that includes picking and choosing what you want to believe and what you don't. Picking and choosing what you want to obey and what you don't. Because no matter the issue, you can find someone, often someone who claims to be a Christian, who will agree with you. You know this. This is why you don't just ask a couple people at church. You ask like 20 people because eventually you're waiting for someone to tell you that it's okay. Be very careful, friends. Even those who are the closest to you, the nearest and dearest can be the influence that corrupts your good morals. Can I make it very practical? This is just practical application. Okay? It's not Scripture. It's not foolproof. But I would recommend that you be wary of people who start statements with, well, you don't really. You know, what you should do is, Eh, in your situation, I think it's okay to... In other words, be wary of friends and family that begin statements the same way the serpent did in the garden. I have never been in the military. I've never been in a war. I have not been a general or the architect of a battle plan. But I would imagine that one of the most strategic goals and guarantees of victory would be this. Not only to get my people to fight the enemy as best they can, but to somehow convince my enemy's people to fight amongst themselves and destroy their own. This is exactly what is happening when Christians deny certain portions of Scripture and then pressure others to do the same. Mind you, this doesn't always come through heretical preaching. Some of the most damaging stuff that Paul's referring to is pressure, ridicule, ultimatums. We are doing the enemy's job for him infighting. It used to be that we were clear who the enemy is. The secularists, the atheists, the liberals. But today it's within our own ranks because Christians have let our former enemies influence them so much that we're fighting each other. Because bad company corrupts good morals. And I don't care if that bad company calls himself pastor, reverend, doctor, father, brother. How many of you are here this morning 
because what I just said exactly describes the church you used to belong to. And some of these churches are the most prominent. They're the most well-known. They're the biggest. Even unbelievers like, oh, I've heard of that church. I went there once for Christmas. And so they say, well, that's a Christian church. We are a Christian church. But that pastor said this, and you're saying this is wrong. And so you have, in our country and around the world, literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, who are fighting us because we're the conservative Christians. We're the bad Christians. And before you want to fight them or argue with them, I would say that we need to weep for them because the majority of them think they're going to heaven and they are not. Because how can you go to heaven if you've never been told sin? Why do you need a Savior if your pastor says, we don't talk about sin here? It makes people uncomfortable. If there's no sin... There's no broken relationship with God. If there's no broken relationship with God, there needs nobody to fix it. Christ is unnecessary. Bad company corrupts good morals. And this hits home with us. There may be views that we agree with that make you feel uncomfortable. That's okay. There may be acts of obedience that you are called to perform that are difficult, that are painful emotionally, and even sometimes physically. You have trouble doing it because it hurts. That's okay. He said, take up your cross, not your pillow. Take up your cross. It's hard. But all of this in light of the resurrection, it's worth it. Uh, I'm not a fool. I'm not a fool. I know it is difficult for some women to submit to their husbands. Trust me, I've met some of your husbands. I'm sure it's hard. (laughs) But we still do it. You just don't throw it out because, well, I believe everything else, but I don't believe this. Because all of a sudden, you're fighting me. You're fighting your husband. That's not even, don't even get me started on, on basically what you're, how you're judging and speaking to, talking about the other women who do do that and think it's a good thing to do that. You're saying they're foolish, they're deceived, they're blind. Definition of love. Whatever it is. So many social issues now. We need to be careful that we don't say we believe the gospel, but just not this part of it that I'm supposed to do because of the gospel. You got that from someone. And it wasn't from me. And I think it's safe to assume it wasn't from anyone sitting next to you in this church. It was from someone else. And that bad company 
needs to be removed from your life as an influence. I get it. Some, some of these people you can't remove from your life because you live with them or they're raising you. They, whatever, they hold the keys to your paycheck. But as we look into the Scripture, we can make sure that they do not have a corrupting influence on us. That's our first measurement. The company you keep. What kind of people are influencing you? Your views that you know disagree with what you read in the Bible. Who gave you those ideas? Who's encouraging you with those? Who's supporting those? Who is the company you keep? And again, that includes whatever we are entertained by as well. Let me give you a second measurement of living in light of eternity. The mindset you master. The mindset you master. The first phrase of verse 34 says, Become sober-minded as you ought. The idea of being sober or sober-minded or of sober spirit is one that is familiar to us in the New Testament. Here, just as with the call to stop being deceived, we have a call to start being sober-minded. Become sober-minded, those three words in English is one word in the Greek, and it comes from the root word that is translated sober in several New Testament verses. It means to become sober or to come to one's senses. It means wake up, either from a drunken stupor or from sleep, both indicating a state in which someone is not thinking clearly, someone is not alert. And Paul is using the term metaphorically here speaking not of a physical state, but of a mental and spiritual. And just as you would want someone to snap out of their foolishness and lack of self-control, lack of inhibitions when they are sleepy or drunk, so Paul is telling the Corinthians to snap out of their worldliness and lack of spiritual alertness. Specifically, in their allowing the heretical teaching regarding the resurrection to influence their doctrine. And of course, their subsequent living in light of that wrong doctrine. So you could say that just as we call being drunk, being under the influence, though not stated, of course, the influence would be of alcohol or drugs. So those who are denying the truth of Scripture are under the influence of false teaching propagated by, again, bad company. As such, Paul says it's not enough to stop being deceived You also need to wake up. You need to come to your senses, your redeemed, biblical, Holy Spirit-driven senses. And Paul's saying, you're, you're drunk. You're in a drunken or sleepy stupor in which the world has its way with you. You're allowing sinful living, which results from wrong thinking, which results from bad doctrine, to rule your life. You're numb, You've allowed it to numb you to the truth you once held as alcohol numbs you to so much. The facts that would make up the object of the phrase, you know better. This isn't you. You know better. And you know better is exactly what is implied by that last phrase, as you ought. The word ought means truly. Really, indeed, as you should, should, so become sober-minded as you should. 
And you should because of what you know to be true about God. In other words, according to what is right in the eyes of God, the Bible. See, those in Corinth that were denying the resurrection thought they were thinking rightly. They thought they were doing something good. And in reality, they were being carried away by foolish and unrealistic notions that contradict the very gospel they claim to believe. The analogy is fitting because like a drunk, or someone who is drunk, those in this spiritual state exercise two of the same predominant behaviors of someone who is intoxicated. First, while drunk, they insist they're fine. I'm fine. I can drive home. I'm okay. Second, they are unaware of how much damage they are inflicting on themselves and on others. Especially if they follow through with the belief that they are fine. At best, they're making a fool of themselves and dishonoring their father At worst, they are engaging in behavior that leads themselves or others to spiritual death. Just as someone who is drunk will lead someone else to physical death or themselves. For the Corinthians, this would be a direct address of their worldly living resulting from the belief that there is no resurrection, behaving as if there is no future in the kingdom of God, Their behavior, when exhibited in light of the truth of the resurrection, can be described in one word, and that one word is delusional. Just as someone who is drunk is similarly deluded in regard to reality, you cannot drive home safely. You cannot fight that guy and win. Thinking they have superhuman strength or more self-control than they actually have when all they're doing is hurting themselves and others. As believers, when we have the truth of Scripture and choose to reword or ignore or dismiss any part of it, then we are no better than the drunken fool who insists he can drive home safely. The irony is that Christians who think this way think they are smarter than others, justifying their beliefs by condescendingly accusing other believers of having outdated views, backwards beliefs, or unloving behavior. And to those, God is saying, wake up. Snap out of your drunkenness and read the text. Sober up and start listening to your spirit-convicted conscience that you are trying so hard to shut up and shut out with the booze of worldliness and personal comfort. In the end, Whichever end of the spectrum that you lean toward is an indication of how much you control your mind. Lean toward the truth of Scripture regardless of how uncomfortable it is to you, how unpalatable it is to the world, then you are mastering your mindset. Tend toward the liberal view of Scripture that allows you to accept the gospel and then pick and choose everything else. Then you're letting the world, you're letting your sin, you're letting your family, you're letting your culture control your mindset. And despite what your ego and comfort tell you, you ain't mastering a thing. Drunk. The alcohol. The false teaching. The world has control. 
You're just an overconfident drunk who's out of touch with the reality of a sovereign God and the demands of the gospel. Master your mindset. Measurement number three. The sin you slay. The sin you slay. He says very clearly, and stop sinning. Stop sinning. It's a pillar of practical Christian living. Stop doing that. But the context here tells us that the influence on the Corinthians' understanding of the resurrection has pushed them off of the path of holiness. And this confirms what I've been saying all morning. This belief that would seem to have no impact on their current Christian daily living truly does. Their sin is not merely in their wrong view, but the subsequent behavior from that wrong view. As with the phrase, do not be deceived, this is in grammar that tells them to stop doing something that they are currently doing. Stop sinning. True repentance, as you know, is putting off. Stop it. Put off sin, put off wrong thinking, wrong behavior, but you know that's not enough and that's not all that repentance entails. You must also put on. The putting on is replacing the void that the sinful behavior left and filling it with righteous behavior. So don't just stop being deceived because bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded and surround yourself with good company. People who will tell you the truth, even when it hurts. And as we saw with the corruption of good morals, any wrong doctrine leads to sin. You can neglect or twist any doctrine from the Bible and see how it corrupts the otherwise moral behavior of the believer. A couple examples. Because of a refusal to believe or adhere to biblical roles in marriage, as a pastor and a counselor, I have witnessed countless hours of arguments, sinful anger, and pride that has even led to affairs and violence against self, against spouse, against children. Because of the practice of spectator Christianity, the act of coming to church just to hear a good sermon but not getting involved, I have seen arrogant criticism of the church, a sinful failure to practice the one another's, and a lack of service, all commanded in Scripture. Those are just two examples of many others that I could share. Ultimately, a wrong view of any part of Scripture leads to sin. So a crucial part of stop sinning is to fix your view of God's Word. And it starts right there in what we call it. Recognize it is God's Word. And I don't know about you. Just a basic principle and a belief in God drives me to think and live that if God has said it, I better do it. And if God has said it, I better get it right for me and for you. You wonder why I tell you about Greek grammar? Because I am terrified that I would give you God's Word incorrectly. Measurement number four, the reality you recognize. He says, for some have no knowledge of God. 
As the beloved of God, there is nobody who is clearer than us that humanity is divided into two categories, Christian and non-Christian. Paul reminds the Corinthians of this fact because sometimes we need to be reminded of the danger of that, the danger that others pose to our beliefs. So who Paul is referring to is, of course, those who are denying the resurrection and influencing the Corinthians to believe the same. And he says, these people have no knowledge of God. They literally are ignorant of God. The phrase is the Greek, in the Greek is speaking of someone who is agnostic. They simply don't know of the true God. They're ignorant. They may not be outright denying Him like an atheist. They just don't know Him. And in this ignorance, they are foreigners to His resources, His grace, His redeeming work through Jesus Christ. Because if they truly experience these things, Paul is saying, then they would believe the resurrection. And if they understood the resurrection, then they would live in light of it. What you believe about God, your knowledge of God, is intertwined with your daily lifestyle. If your life does not reflect your theology, if your life does not reflect your theology, then it probably truly isn't your theology. It may be the theology of your church, It may be the theology that you know you are to speak forth among these people. You may intellectually know that it's the right thing. It's what God's Word says. But if you are not living it, it's not your theology. Maybe mine, and maybe our churches, and maybe his, and maybe Chris's, maybe hers, and maybe your spouse's, your kids. But it's not yours if you're not living it out. You know, sometimes we hear something new. A new trend in evangelicalism. A new movement, a new book, a new way of doing church. We like it because it's new. It's fresh. It's different. We get bored with sit up, read the Scripture, sit down, stand up, sing a few songs, sing a hymn, sit down, hear a sermon. We want something new. I don't mean us. You wouldn't be here if you wanted that. But out there. You know, in a lot of churches, the, the, the second most prominent individual in the church with the, with the second most influence after the pastor, sometimes more, is the social media director or the media director. Give me videos. Give me stories. Give me a band. Give me fog machines. Give me lights. Blow out my eardrums. Church should be a concert. It's new. It's different. I like it. It's good. Oh, now I can invite my friends, you say. So, you know, you justify it that way. But often it actually appeals to sinful rebellion as it bucks the status quo of church that we are so frustrated and bored with. But sometimes and often, as is the case here, this is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Coming in and saying, hey, listen, Roger, great people, good music, good sermons. I could double the size of your church by the end of summer. You have it 45 minutes, cut it down to maybe 25 minutes. 
You don't do a lot of stories, do more of that. Don't just appeal to us with Scripture. Make us cry, make us laugh, make us dance in the aisles. Make us go home and go, wow, wow, that was moving. What did you learn about God? Hmm, I, I don't know. Nothing. Man, that video, though, that was great. That was really good. Good job, son. You should be an actor. Right? Or like, double the size of our church? Yeah. Oh, wow, busting at the seams. Oh, imagine. We have enough money for a building. We have, uh. It appeals to our sinful nature. But that guy, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. I want the guy who says, preach for two hours, Roger. No, I don't. I'm just kidding. I won't do that. I know you think I'm headed there this morning, but I, we're not. No, I wouldn't do that. You know, it's not, it's not superior knowledge. It's actually based on ignorance, as Paul says here. That was the case with them. They actually don't truly know the Lord. You see, the Bible does not change. In our current world, with the understandings we have of ancient languages and translations and archaeology, there is nothing new about the Bible and the doctrine contained therein that we don't already know. Evaluate your life, especially if you have a tendency to be easily swayed toward these new trends and claims of a better way. Frankly, if you look at the churches who have discovered and practiced that, quote, better way, they are busting at the seams. They're going to multiple campuses. But they don't preach the gospel. In my definition, despite what you call that guy speaking up there, despite what the last letter C on your giant building stands for, you are not a church. A church preaches God's Word to God's people. That's our fourth measurement. Do you truly recognize that there is an unbelieving world out there and their beliefs have infiltrated the church and may have influenced your view on doctrine? Finally, number five. We've seen the company you keep, the mindset you master, the sin you slay, the reality you recognize. And fifthly, the fifth measurement of living in light of eternity is the embarrassment you endure. He says, I speak this to your shame. As Christians, and rightly so, we want to be encouraging, especially to one another. We want to be a blessing to others, especially to others in the church. We do not want to judge, and you shouldn't. We don't want to criticize, and you shouldn't. We don't want to condemn, that is forbidden. But in the midst of all that, we cannot forget that there is personal shame in sinning. We want to say it's okay, but it's not okay. God's glory is at stake. Your worship of your Creator is at stake. Your joy and spiritual well-being are at stake. It's not okay. It's shameful. 
I remember one of the most heartbreaking experiences I've had as a dad. A bunch of us took a road trip to, to celebrate someone who had just uh, graduated from uh, training in the Marine Corps. And I made it a daddy-son trip. I brought one of my boys, and he had just started learning poetry in school. And he kept quoting this poem that he had written. I'm like, that is so good. And we were in this big van that Lewis had rented, and I started telling everyone, I'm like, listen to his poem. And everyone's like, whoa, that's so good. You wrote that? He's like, yeah. And I remember a few days after the, the trip, I looked at our kitchen wall. There's a counter where we post different notices and updates, newsletters from the teachers, and I was reading one. And there was the poem that the teacher had written. And I said, son, Mrs. R wrote that poem. I said, why, why did you lie to everyone? He said, I just... I just got caught up and everyone was giving me attention and everyone's so proud of me. And I said, I get it. But son, you need to go to church this Sunday and you need to find everyone that was on the trip and tell them what you did and apologize. Had a couple days before Sunday. I called or texted every one of those people because I knew what I would do if someone else's kid came up to me. And I called all of them and I said, please, don't tell them it's okay. Tell them you forgive them. Tell them it was wrong. But don't tell them what he did was okay. And so many of you guys said, I'm, thank you for telling me. I see where you're coming from because that's what I would have done. I would have just said, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Because I wanted him to learn the truth and what he had done before the Lord. We want to do that because we want to make people feel better. It's, it's okay. And in hindsight, now it's okay. It's okay in the sense that you are forgiven. You don't need to walk around like, oh, God's going to judge me for something that I've repented of, something that I've asked forgiven for. But in the midst of it, it's not okay. You need to change. You need to repent. It is, Paul saying, to your shame. And with something as crucial as the resurrection, to deny it and subsequently live in sin and a lack of discernment regarding wolves and their mist is shameful. This was not an innocent mistake. This was a choice. This was not slight confusion. They knew better. They should be embarrassed. That's what shame means here. Shame and embarrassment that stems from something you have done or not done. You know, so often we are embarrassed because of our pride, because of our ego. Much of that is because of something someone else has done. We're embarrassed because our kids are throwing a tantrum in the store. We're, be, we're embarrassed because of something someone at work did. And the irony is that it is our pride that makes us embarrassed, but in the wrong way. Fearing a loss of reputation or inviting ridicule, or oftentimes we just think that's going to happen. It doesn't really happen. That's not what Paul is addressing here. He is addressing true biblical shame from objective guilt before God and His Word because of your sin. You're going to deny what you did, reject it, and continue sinning? That's shameful. Too often, we feel more embarrassment and shame over 
secular, worldly things than we do over our sin against the Lord. We've lost our sense of shame in this country. I mean, even from a social perspective, that's why these movements are so strong. Because a majority of people don't care anymore, and so they want to let you know what you're doing is wrong. I'm not saying I agree with their opinions. I'm saying they are pushing for Roe v. Wade to stay because they want to tell the Supreme Court, you're wrong in overturning it. Don't you get it? You're wrong in thinking this way about ethnicities. And so they shout. Even unbelievers get. We need to shout to get the message across because no one cares anymore. No one feels a sense of shame. We justify, we excuse, we blame ship, we double down in our pride, we dig in our heels. Have you noticed how the sensitivity, even secular general morality that God gave all men in our consciences and hearts is so upside down now? It's twisted. What is actually hatred in God's eyes is called love. There's no grace. There's just this subjective slime. People do whatever they want. And all of a sudden, things that are are hard to do, people say, well, no, I don't want to do that because it's weakness. How did doing the hard thing, the right thing, become weakness? Apologizing. Taking blame for your, your mistakes. Being a good dad. Working to provide for your family. How did those things become bad? We have flipped everything around. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I feel like it's just a big scam. It's a big scam who, by, <laughs> propagated by people who are too lazy and proud to do the right thing. Oh, I'm going to do that. It's a weakness. It's not how things should be done anymore. All right, I'm going to go take a nap, play my video games. As Christians, we need to increase our view of God through involvement with His Word and His people. And the more you do that, you have a high view of God and you have a realistic biblical view of the gravity of your sin. And then you will be embarrassed when you should be embarrassed. shouldn't be embarrassed when you accidentally spill coffee on your shirt in front of your coworkers, and yet somehow we are more embarrassed by that than the fact that you knowingly went to work having discouraged your son with your harsh words that morning. Upside down. You know, shaming is one of the ways we enforce our biblical standards and keep people from deviating. Do you hear what I just said? Shaming is one of the ways we enforce our biblical standards and keeps people from deviating. You say, well, that sounds bad. But that's the exact formula society uses. We call it status quo. We call it culture. We call it peer pressure. Peer pressure is generally considered negative, especially for kids and adolescents and puberty. But there's a positive peer pressure in church. 
It's not ideal. It's not the most God-glorifying. But how many of you sometimes come to church like, I don't really want to go, but you know what? I don't want Dennis calling me and asking me where I was on Sunday. (laughs) There's a peer pressure there, and that's good because... Again, it's not the best reason to go to church, but you came to church, you worshipped, you fellowshiped, you were convicted, you grew. That's okay. I'm not saying we should stand up here and roll call, shameless time. (laughs) Did you know that that's part of what church discipline is? I don't want to go through it all, but if you've gone to stage four of church discipline, Obviously, the Word of God hasn't worked. Obviously, the church calling them to repentance hasn't worked. The appeals, the begging, the tears to tell them to repent has not worked. So what do we do? We're going to announce your name to the church. And part of that is to embarrass them back into repentance. It's just the reality. Again, ideally, they would have repented on their own before anyone spoke to them. But if they have gone through those many months and the entire church in tears saying, please stop doing this, the word of God and the love of the brethren doesn't work, then we're going to say, you know what? Then I'm going to appeal to your ego and get you back here. But the bottom line is, we should feel shame when we sin. Whether anyone knows about it or not. We cave when society doesn't tolerate anyone deviating from their beliefs. We need to care when we deviate from God's. And that's a measurement of living in light of eternity. Are you embarrassed when God's Word says you should be embarrassed? Or are you only ashamed when society says you should be? Because if it's the latter, out of love, I need to tell you, you are in grave danger. Grave danger. Fix that. Well, five measurements of living in light of eternity. The company you keep, the mindset you master, the sin you slay, the reality you recognize, the embarrassment you endure. Listen, we change our behavior based on our future all the time. A child says, I'm going to college, I can't do those childish things. I need to learn to cook. I need to learn to do my laundry. They change their behavior. An adult says, I'm pregnant now. My wife is pregnant. I need to change my spending habits. I need to open another account. I need to start saving for college. I have a job I'm starting. I need to change how I dress. I need to start waking up earlier. I need to go to bed earlier. You can do that in light of the reality of your future eternity and resurrection as well. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the rebuke to the Corinthians and the rebuke to us. Help us to be those who live practically in light of eternity. Help us to recognize if there are people in our lives that are influencing our doctrine and our morality. And may we change that in a biblical way. Help us to see if there's any 
sin that we need to repent of, if there's any wrong thinking about any doctrine, whether it's considered a core doctrine or peripheral doctrine, Lord, anything in your word, help us to repent of our fear of man that causes us to feel more embarrassment and shame because of social faux pas than we do when we sin against you. Soften our consciences and our hearts so that we are sensitive to the sin that we commit, that the shame before you would not be so so little, so small that we just have a quick forgive me, Lord, but it drives us to our knees in weeping before the holy throne of God. Help us to be this kind of people, Lord. And if there are any wolves in sheep's clothing that are in our midst or want to come through those doors, may you bring them to true repentance and a saving knowledge of you. May you give us the discernment, if they don't, to kick them out swiftly. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.